You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxham. I am at once excited and anxious to see parts of the art world reopen. I am reassured that most arts venues are being incredibly responsible as they welcome their patrons back into their physical spaces, But I confess that I am not quite ready to join them. I am happy to go to outdoor events with safe physical distances maintained, but being indoors with other people still feels a bit challenging. So I am comforted by and thankful to all our arts organisations that continue to double their workload and offer real life and virtual experiences still. And on this week's show, we have the full spectrum of options, virtual theatre, outdoor theatre and safely distanced indoor arts experiences. I feel so fortunate to live in such an arts wonderland with so many creative minds which have worked overtime for months to keep our spirits engaged and hold the stir-crazy at bay. So I hope that for the next hour, you have the time and the mental space to enjoy a tour of our ever-vibrant local art scene. First stop on today's grand tour is a theatrical one. Greenhouse Theatre Project is back, virtually, with a new show that opens tonight on a computer or TV screen near you. So let's check in with Greenhouse Executive Director and actor Elizabeth Brutton-Palmieri and Director Claire Seiler. Good morning, Elizabeth and Claire. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having us. Well, thank you for coming on the show to talk about Greenhouse Theatre Project's new production of the Lauren Gunderson play, Natural Shocks. Now, like every theatre company, Greenhouse has had to take its planned season and reinvent it. But in your case, it seems like the silver lining is that you have a new playwright bestie, and she is none other than the most produced playwright in the country, except for Shakespeare, for two out of the last three years. So Elizabeth, let's start off with what led you to the play Natural Shocks by Lauren Gunderson. Yeah, well, first off, um, the comparison to Shakespeare uh, with Lauren is apropos because she is so inspired by Shakespeare and, and he weaves his way into a lot of her work and her writings and just her style. She has such a great appreciation for the classics and yet she is so progressive and innovative that she just kind of takes that and leaps headstrong into the future and really expresses women in such a way that, uh, I, I guess Claire kind of put it best the other day. She said to me, women are just so much more interesting than men, aren't they? <laughs> it's like, it's totally true. Just like the complexity. So I think something about Lauren that I love is her complexity with her characters. But I found Lauren not too long ago in this last year, I was directing a piece called The Revolutionist, which is another great play of hers. And when this pandemic hit, that play was shut down uh, the day before we were supposed to open. And so that was kind of disheartening. And I was completely in love with that piece and that production. 
and uh, just kind of started up a conversation with the actual playwright herself, with Lauren. She reached out on social media and asked if anyone had stories or images of productions uh, of her works that they had been working on that were shut down because of the pandemic. And that's kind of what um, instigated this <laughs> this relationship. And uh, I, I'll say a love affair on my end anyway, <laughs> of Lauren Gunderson. <laughs> And I found her one woman play, uh, Natural Shocks. I was just doing research and kind of asked her a little bit about it. And um, just in a little bit of our, you know, early on correspondence was asking, you know, do you think that this would be able to shift to a, a Zoom platform? And from like mo- moment one, she was just so accommodating and um, just cheering me on, you know, to to do this. So that was really, really wonderful because that that's what kind of gave me the, okay, I can do this. This is, you know, I'm just going to, I'm going to try it out. The other thing is that I, for years have wanted to do a one woman show and Claire in conversations while social distance walking with Claire, we kind of came to this understanding that it, it, you know, it took a pandemic for me to actually have the courage to do something like this, mainly because I needed to keep working and I needed to be artistic and in order to kind of survive this isolation period. And this is what's come out of it. So give us an overview of the play, Elizabeth. So Angela is our lady in waiting here. She's in her basement waiting out a tornado. And as the play moves on, we we learn that this tornado is a metaphor for other things in her life. She's charming. She's witty. She's clever. She's just a really lovely character. And I've fallen in love with her too. But, you know, bringing back that complexity, there are these layers that start to reveal themselves as the play moves on. And what I love about the way that Lauren has set this piece up is she says, it's a comedy until it's not. And that is the turn, the turn, the the shift, the switch, the transition is so abrupt and shocking, I guess I will say. And yet at the same time, she kind of keeps hitting you as the play goes on with more and more shocks. And it's just, it's, it's exciting. It's an exciting piece. And so I don't want to give, you know, too much away, but that's kind of the, the basis there. Well, Claire, the play launched across the country in April 2018 with a series of free readings to raise funds and awareness for gun violence prevention. It had more than 100 readings in 48 states and then it premiered in October of 2018. And the play is a condemnation of violence, abuse and firearms in America and is also apparently based on Hamlet's famous to be or not to be soliloquy. Can you expand on all of that for us a little bit? I can try. I think one of the things that's important to me about Lauren Gunderson that's activist in itself is her elevation of women. And I think you hear that in what Elizabeth was just describing, that she reached out to people. She seized a challenging opportunity to say, okay, my work's been put on hold. What's happening with it? But also, how can I help? And I think that's an impulse that is um, activist in dimension, that sees challenge and says, how can I help? And then also seeing women and seeking to spotlight their work. And so I find that in itself to be sort of a radical notion. Um, and she does this not only as herself, as a playwright, of, of giving us these, these artistic works, but then also her characters are really rich and are multifaceted. And to me, that's the connection to Shakespeare, to Hamlet. 
is that she's going to expand upon these characters and then put them into a female voice. And so you see that beautiful soliloquy that many of us know a line or two from, we know the gist of, but you see the natural shocks distilled into the female experience. And she's a pretty common lady, this Angela. She's an insurance agent. You might pass her any day at the grocery store and not know what she's experiencing in her life, just as we do every day. We pass by people and we, we have no clue what they're going through at night, what they're going through to make it to that grocery store and look so ordinary. And so I, I find that smashing together this common experience, the common female experience with this prince <laughs> of history, but also a prince in the play and really melding that together to say the human experience is so complex, multifaceted, and it's it resides and it lives in women's everyday experience as well. Talk to me a little bit about directing a play remotely. Presumably all of the direction was done through Zoom. Well, sort of. I mean, <laughs> I, like Elizabeth, am a real sucker for, for time and space and theater. So it was important to me to at least, um, you know, we kept social distance. We, we did it thoughtfully, carefully, but I wanted to at least get into the space to see where the filming would happen to get my own sort of calibration of that. And that was important for me. And then it was just, you know, one of the great things about art making is trust and vulnerability and respect. And I already had deep respect for Elizabeth, but I didn't know her as well. So it's important also to get to know somebody what, that you're working with and you're being vulnerable with. And that is just best done, I think, in co-presence and in being together. And so we did it responsibly. We, we took walks far apart from each other. We stayed far apart from each other. But I do think it was important to initially be present together, to think about the piece together. And then it was sort of a gradual like extending of the leash. <laughs> we, we were like, okay, now it's time for Zoom. Um, and it was important to begin looking at the piece in that frame, literal frame, uh, because so much was not going to be happening in terms of what we both love about theater and, and interaction in time and space. And so we had to kind of translate that to to Zoom. And the play is taking place in your actual basement, Elizabeth. So you are true to the play in that sense. Angela's in a basement, you are in your basement. It must be really hard doing a one-woman show or one-person show at the best of times, but to do it so isolated. In this instance, did that help a little bit or hinder? Yeah, great question. It definitely helped. I mean, first of all, it was the catalyst to to doing this piece, this isolation, this pandemic. I thrive on ensemble work. My company, Greenhouse, is very much so an ensemble-based company. We're all about collaboration and the experience and the work that comes out of the process of being together in, in a room, in a space together. So this is like the opposite of what I, what I usually strive for in my work. And yet at the same time, I think it posed a challenge for me as an artist and something that maybe I needed at that point in my, in my career, in my life, unknowingly of that at the time, of course. But, you know, the challenge also lives in the fact that this is my my home space. I have a three-year-old. I have a husband who is now working from home. We're all 
trapped together in the house, you know, and um, there's a lot of uh, stress that arises in those situations too. But yeah, I think that absolutely, you know, the, this whole feeling of, of loneliness, of isolation has given me a lot to work with in this piece. So the play opens tonight, Friday, and it's on tonight, tomorrow matinee and tomorrow night. And then it's on three times next weekend too? Uh, twice next week. So next next Thursday and Friday night as well. And people can get tickets through Greenhouse Theatre Project's website and then they will be sent an email explaining how to see the production through Zoom. Correct. Okay. All right. Pretty straightforward. <laughs> Ladies, thank you so much for coming on to chat and break a leg. Thank you so much. Thanks, Diana. Bye-bye. Bye. We'll be coming back to theatre later in the show, but first, let's take in that heady aroma of new books and stop in to see Alex George at Skylark Bookshop. Good morning, Alex. Hi, Diana. How are you today? I am fantastic, as usual. Now, usually I take up half our time together by asking you questions about publishing or writing or, you know, what it feels like to take your character to the supermarket. So today <laughs> we have three books to talk about, The Lincoln Conspiracy, Wombat, Poop Cubes, and Bush Asterisk T. So I am just going to say, take it away, Alex. And if we have time left at the end, I'll launch into my take us behind the scenes questions. So take it away, Alex. So The Lincoln Conspiracy uh, is a wonderful book. It's by Brad Meltzer and Josh Mensch. This is the second book that they've written together. And their shtick is that they take little known moments of history and tell them and they tell them in an extraordinarily entertaining way. I mean, Brad Meltzer is the author of many, many New York Times bestselling novels, their thrillers. He's also written a fair amount of kids' books and other nonfiction, but the guy really, really knows how to tell a story. And The Lincoln Conspiracy is a little known detail of history, really, about a plot to assassinate then-president-elect Lincoln. He hadn't yet become president, but he had won the election. And he was actually on a train uh, passing from Illinois, going all the way to Washington, D.C. And on his way, he had to stop in Baltimore. And the plot was that he would be assassinated while he was in Baltimore. And it's just an amazing story. And and whether you know about it or not, it's brilliantly entertaining. There are heroes and there are villains. And the suspense is, is sustained, which is really impressive when you think about it, because you you know from the beginning how it's going to end. <laughs> so, <laughs> spoiler alert, the plot fails. But it, it's wonderfully well done. And, and I actually listened to it on audio, and I sort of couldn't stop listening. It was really, really good. And as I say, told like a thriller. And so none of the dry, ponderous stuff that you sometimes see in history books. It, it's really very entertaining indeed. How much additional literary license do they put into it? This is all completely factually based. Oh, absolutely. You know, this is 100% factually based and they've done their research intricately. So so there is there is nothing made up here. It is all all based on facts. And one of the things that it does, in addition to telling this extraordinary story about how the conspiracy was foiled, was it also gives a great insight into Abraham Lincoln himself. You know, you get a very clear sense of his impoverished beginnings and 
and his awkwardness. And, you know, he was extraordinarily tall and not especially good looking and, and was roundly mocked for a lot of his life um, for the way that he appeared. Uh, and it sort of pushes home, if you like, the all-round unlikelihood of his ever becoming the president, which I guess is an interesting story. And, and it's one that we as Americans love, the underdog becoming, you know, rising to the to the highest office in the land. And it also does a wonderful job of covering his rise to power, and in particular, how he overcame a field of far more experienced and qualified candidates in the Republican Party to actually win the nomination for the presidency and then how he went on to win the election. So that was all very interesting to me. I had read other books about it, particularly Doris Kearns Goodwin's Team of Rivals, but this told the same story in about 10 pages as opposed to 600. So I sort of appreciated that succinctness. And the other thing that was very valuable to me as someone who didn't study much American history while I was at school, because I was in England at the time, uh, was that it gives a deep and thorough context for the Civil War and for the institution of slavery in general, and, and in particular, just how, just how determined the South was not to give it up. And it's very interesting to read that. And the way that the authors present it, and with the benefit of 150 years of hindsight, I mean, there seems to be just such an, an inevitability to the Civil War, given the South's intransigence and their absolute determination to preserve their way of life. And sorry to say, all of that still seems super relevant in today's climate. So all in all, it was highly entertaining, very informative. It felt very relevant today. And, you know, I mean, you could sort of call it sort of history for people who maybe think they don't like history. And uh, with uh, Father's Day coming up on Sunday, it strikes me it'd be a very good gift for fathers, uh, the right history-obsessed reader. Great marketing, great timing. Yes, okay, that would be a good Father's Day gift. Yeah. And then the other two books um, that, that we're going to talk about are actually written by the same person. Her name is Katie Adams, and they sort of present sort of different sides of the same idea and uh, they are tremendous fun. They are rather less serious than the assassination or would-be assassination of a president, um, as you might have guessed from the titles. I mean, Wombat's Poop Cubes is is not a title that is probably, I don't know, going to win any literary awards. But it's <laughs> um, but it's it's a wonderfully fun book. And what it is is, and this this, this is a great book, <laughs> believe it or not, to sit down with your kids with, or just to read for your own entertainment and edification. Uh, so. This book is full of really bizarre, true facts, and they are boiled down into three-word sentences. So, for example, I don't know if anybody listening has any experience with uh, wombat poop, but if they did, then they would be able to confirm that, yes, indeed, they are um, poop does come out in cubes. So there you are. And there are all sorts of um, equally strange bits of information and knowledge such as, let me see here, kangaroos can't reverse, rabbits attacked Napoleon, <laughs> uh, and bees bees get drunk. Uh, and with each of these, in addition to the three-word uh, sorry, three word sentence, there is also a fuller explanation underneath it. So, for example, there's, I'm just, I've opened fairly much at random. It says, elephants get heartbroken. That's the, that's the three-word sentence. And then there's an explanation. When an elephant dies, their mate goes into deep mourning. They actually cry and collapse to the ground and refuse to get back up, even as other elephants in the pack comfort them and encourage them to stand up and move on. Oh, goodness, that's a downer, isn't it? Well, anyways. It 
Elephants, well, another one with elephants, it's also in the book, is elephants suck trunks. They do like suck the end of their trunk like it's a thumb. Like kids do, <laughs> suck their thumb, they suck their trunks. So that's a nice, a nice elephant story. That's a, thing, that's a little better. Well, well, thank you. Save, save that one for us. <laughs> oh, and here's another one. I've just said, toothpaste contains antifreeze. Oh, dear. I don't think I want to read that one. I'm going to leave that one <laughs> right where it is. And so, and the, the other book, so, so those are all truths, unlikely ones, but they are, they are sort of, as it says on the cover, mind-blowing facts. And then the other one, the other book that Katie Adams has written, as you said, I'm not quite sure what we're allowed to say, but um, it's sort of, yeah, bull, S-H, and then an apostrophe, asterisk, asterisk. T. <laughs> Yes. And this is, and the subtitle of this one is 500 Mind-Blowing Lies That We Still Believe. Again, this seems weirdly relevant uh, in today's society, uh, as everyone seems to be entitled to their own facts, alternative or not. But what's fascinating about this book is that I've been going through it, and there are a ton of things that I thought were true that actually are not true. And so this, again, is quite informative, but it's also very entertaining. And again, it's something that I know that Kerry has sat down with her kids and they've gone through a lot of this stuff. And I think everyone learned a lot. So, for example, and again, I just kind of opened this at random. So spam, unwanted solicited email, is named after spam, the polarizing canned meat product. Okay, that is that is not true. And you, I know. And you, you will appreciate this as a Brit, Diana. So... Uh, Early internet users named it after the 1970 Monty Python's Flying Circus sketch set in a diner where every item on the menu has some form of spam in it. Spam, 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 yep. Spam a lot. So, um, <laughs> and here's, here's another one which, which absolutely floored me. The acknowledged truth is that uh, croissant come from France and apparently they actually come from Austria. So I guess that's not surprising. The Austrians are very good at pastries. Well, that's true. Oh, here's another. Napoleon Bonaparte was extremely short. And apparently he wasn't, but he surrounded himself with lots of very tall people so as to appear imposing on the battlefield. And that made him seem shorter than he was. <laughs> so there you go. And uh, And apparently at the time... At the time of his death, in 1821, his height was recorded at five foot two, but that's in the French measurement system of the era. In English measurements, he was five foot seven, average height for a 19th century French guy, and indeed me. So, uh, so there you are. Uh, all, all these things that I, I thought I knew about, and, and I didn't. So, both of these books are, are tremendous fun. Just looking at looking at these things from different ends of the telescope. I was going to ask you which fact you were most surprised about, if there was one that really stood out to you overall. Well, I mean, I think the one about spam was quite, <laughs> was quite, quite good. But there, I mean, there are a ton of them in here, and they're actually broken down into different categories. So there's there's one about sports and entertainment and uh, and quotes and sort of and misquotes, of course, which are always you know people always misquote things and uh, things that go into history which were never actually said. So uh, yeah, I mean I, I don't know if there's one in particular other than the spam one, but that was that was a goodie. I thought. I mean, you say spam enough, it just <laughs> sounds silly. <laughs> I have actually been to the Spam Museum in Minnesota. <laughs> Oh uh, it's in Austin, Minnesota. It's a very small town. It has a spam museum. I went to the spam festival uh, and I ate 
I did have to eat some spam and it was absolutely as awful as I expected it to be, having not eaten it since I was a small child. I was going to say that's something very much was redolent of school days, mm-hmm. in, in England anyway. Makes your teeth squeak. Oh, yeah. oh, 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 no. Mm. Anyway, three fantastic gifts for Father's Day coming up this weekend, I think, is it? Yes, it is. It's on, it's on Sunday. Well, thank you so much, Alex. As a father yourself, I hope um, that you receive three fabulous books. Maybe not these three, as clearly you've already read them. (laughs) Well, happy Father's Day for Sunday, Alex, and I'll chat to you soon. Thanks, Diana. I find it nearly impossible to walk out of a bookshop without buying something. If there is a multiverse, I imagine it to look like a bookshop. Where to next? How about the cinema? It's just a quick trot up Cherry Street to Ragtag Cinema, and it's delightful director, Barbie Banks. Good morning, Barbie. Good morning. How are you? I'm great. You know, I love the line on your website that states, our current moment has seen a swell of self-reflection and education, because I am definitely caught up in that. And I was thinking, you know, I've lived and worked in six different countries across three continents. I've been a minority. I've definitely been a foreigner. And now I'm an immigrant, even if I do still think of myself really as a foreigner. And despite all that globetrotting and experience, I think I now live in possibly the most complicated country when it comes to its relationship with race and ethnicity and immigration. And I feel totally at sea. 15 years in America, and I feel like something in my sense of self as a global denizen has been eroded. And I'm back in the first year at school with just a mountain of learning ahead of me and and so many books to read and so many films to see. And how do you fit it all in? <laughs> I know. I You really do have to do the work. I mean, I think that is the biggest thing is dedicating time to make it happen, whether that's relearning our history from not a lens that is just whitewashed, but or watching movies, you know, we put out that movie list uh, where that line comes from, to really be a time, a, a place where you can educate yourself in what we think is some really great entertainment also, you know, and so it's about putting the time in. And right now, you can be in the streets marching. Um, not everyone feels comfortable doing that. But you can also just be on your couch educating yourself, which I think is different than other times that we've gone through some of this. I bought books last week, and I've got the movies lined up that I want to see. And it is really fascinating. It's really fascinating having a chance to learn or relearn history as you think you know it. I'm wondering, you know, you're doing, you're showing all these works that highlight racism and the black experience in America, and you're promoting works by black and brown creators. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if the ragtag community is reaching out to you with requests to see certain films or programs at this time. You know, we haven't got a lot of requests. We got a lot of people thanking us for showing Do the Right Thing, whether it was It's My Favorite Movie and I watch it all the time, or lots of people who said, I've never seen it and I've been meaning to. And we we do think it's meant to be seen on a big screen. There's just some shots in it that show so much better when it's on a giant screen in front of your face and it's so much more impactful. And so we've been getting a lot of that. People that are just excited that we didn't open with just singing in the rain, that we offered a thought-provoking piece. And honestly, last weekend, that was the the only films that we sold out where Do the Right Thing, Singing in the Rain did well, but um, Do the Right Thing blew it out of the water. So I think people are 
they're itching for this sort of content right now. How was opening weekend? It was good. It was very strange to be excited to have 30 people. You know, normally when we sell out with 130, we're like, this is amazing. And now we're like 30 people. This is great. So, but everyone was respectful. We had our box office staff did lots of cleaning, the upright staff, the bartenders were almost like jovial to have anybody to interact with. So it felt like a a return to some normalcy. And we have decided that we're going to open on Sundays earlier than we thought we would. So this week, and you can come um, Friday, Saturday or Sunday to see one of our films. How long in advance did you sell out? How many hours in advance? It was actually just a few minutes before the film started. So we can fit 35 into our theater, our big theater. And we sold about 25 online and then 10 people bought the, you know, just 20 minutes prior to the film. So I do think then that was just members. So I think this weekend, everyone would be smart to go online and purchase their tickets because I think we're going to sell out even more this weekend now that it's open to the general public. Okay, I hadn't caught that. So this week from now on, then everything is open to the public. Right. I was talking with a friend last week and she said, oh, maybe we should go to the movies tonight. And I thought, well, A, I don't think I'm quite ready to do that. But B, I mean, I just thought we weren't going to get a ticket because with only 35 seats available, it would have already have sold out. Yeah, we're trying to limit... Um you know, we, we try to do right by our members that want to use their punches or our Guffman members get in for free. And so we do limit the number we sell online to a little bit less than capacity so that we have a few extra spaces for those who are members. And so you can always call if you're worried. We're happy to tell you the number of that we've already sold and if it's worth coming down to the cinema. Well, I was looking through your website at the films that you are recommending, and there was a couple that I didn't know about. One is called Within Our Gates, and it was made in 1920 by an African-American director called Oscar Michaud. Tell us a little bit about Within Our Gates. It is a, it's a silent film that it was one of the first times that we really saw in a silent film, Black people empowered and it not just about white supremacy. And so it portrays a, a racial situation that's happening in the United States. And it's very similar to what's going on now. And so I think it's it's important to watch because we think of the silent era as a film with, you know, Buster Keaton and just all these white people. And really, there was a richer history going on there at the time. And the other film that I'm interested in is Black Power Mixtape by a Swedish, I guess it's it's curated by a Swedish director called Jöran Olsen. And it's Black Power Mixtape 1967 to 1975. And I think it's really interesting when outsiders come in and look at a situation. Yeah. And it's their viewpoint. It's it's rather than it being American reporters that are gathering this information, there were all of these film canisters that he found in a basement of a Swedish television station. And he started to go through them and realized what incredible footage there is in there of Swedish reporters coming to America and reporting on on that era, on Angela Davis and the civil rights eras and Martin Luther King of the of the late 1960s. And that's very fascinating. Yeah. And, you know, it played at True False. And I think um, it was a pretty low turnout when it played. And I I bet there's people now that are just kicking themselves for missing it because it was such a great experience. And we showed it on film, which is just a different experience than seeing it digitally. And it was great to talk to the director. And he brought 
one of the other reporters, I can't remember who it was, but yeah, you're right. Having an experience from somebody who's not American examining what's happening in American culture is really interesting. Because to some degree, America, certainly outside of America, maybe less so today than 25, 30 years ago, was definitely kind of an exotic destination. It was this, you know, this huge country with such a diverse history. And if you're not from here, if you're from Sweden, where it's very ethnically simple, (laughs) um, then there's a fascination with these cultures. And when I lived in Sweden, certainly even then in the 80s, I think there was a huge fascination with America. And so I can see why it would be interesting for Swedish reporters to come in at that incredible time in our history and look at it through their lens. Yeah, it's, it's really good. I highly recommend it. And what was unique about the Swedish perspective is that you often hear from countries that are more ethnically diverse and have dealt with some of these issues taking a look at us. But with the Sweden, people of Sweden, it was, I don't know, kind of a foreign concept in a little ways to them because it is so much more homogenous there. Right. There definitely wasn't a civil rights movement in Sweden at that time. Right. Yeah. Um, just quickly before we close, you've really begun to solidify the summer drive-in. Yes. You've got a date, August the 15th, Saturday afternoon. Do you know how many cars you can fit? So we're looking um, at 100 cars. So we do think that will sell out pretty quickly, but it's you pay per car and you can squeeze as many of your lovely friends in the car <laughs> as you would like. <laughs> um, and your ticket does come with uh, dinner. So it'll be dinner and a movie and um, a show also will have music there. There's roadside attractions that you can stop at along the way to get to the drive-in. Yeah, so it's going to be a really great time. I'm very excited. And we're showing um, Waiting for Guffman, which is the very mm-hmm. first film we ever show have shown at Ragtag. But we're also going to pair it with a couple shorts that if you've seen Waiting for Guffman, it's great, but it is very white. And so we're going to pair it with a couple short films that are a little bit more diverse and kind of show the range of films that we now show at Ragtag rather than films just like Waiting for Guffman. Well, thank you, Barbie. I look forward to that. And uh, I'll catch up with you later. See you soon. Thank you. Bye. Our next hopping off point today is a little ways south of town. So time to hop on our bicycles. At the Mont Mini Gallery at the Boone History and Culture Centre, a new art exhibit curated by artist and art teacher Elise Rugolo has just opened in real life. So let's go on inside. Good morning, Elise. Hi, Diana. So when I first got in touch to ask you to come and chat on Speaking of the Arts about the new show, Fusion 2020, that you've been working on for months, you didn't know (laughs) if or when people would be able to physically visit the exhibit at the Montmini Gallery. But I hear there is good news on that front. Yes, uh, it opens to the public tomorrow, actually. But unlike most shows, there won't be any opening gathering We are working on ideas for that. So we may do something. It won't be the traditional opening, of course. Uh, Because it's summer, we may be able to actually utilize the uh, outdoor courtyard area and have that be where people really gather to talk. And, you know, because openings are mainly about people just getting together and talking. (laughs) And and the artwork is sometimes just... (laughs) aside to that. So then people will be allowed to go in, you know, in smaller groups into the actual gallery. So I think that's probably how we'll handle it. Uh, 
We don't have a date set for that. Um, I'm thinking it may be in July sometime at this point. So the Fusion 2020 and Caustic Art of Elise Rugolo and Students, um, it seems that 15 years ago, I didn't hear about encaustic work too terribly much, but now it's having something of a renaissance. Tell us about the technique. Well, in a nutshell, encaustic is really just painting with molten wax. And it can be intimidating at first because of all the different heat processes necessary to get the wax into that molten state and then onto your substrate. But essentially, I find it to be one of the most direct and easy techniques to learn. It is an ancient medium dating back like 2000 years. But yes, it sort of fell out of favor probably in the seventh century when other painting techniques became more popular. And I think part of the reason why it has had this resurgence of interest amongst artists these days is so many more artists are interested in doing cross-disciplinary techniques. And encaustic is just wonderful for that because it um, it can act in many different roles. It can act as almost a glue. It can act as like a varnish. You can create really high gloss surfaces with it. Um, you can build up texture. You can build up physical depth with it. So for instance, let's say a fiber artist wants to combine their fiber work with ceramics. Um, you could actually coat a piece of pottery with encaustic wax and embed pieces of fiber in it. So that's a way, that's just one example of infinite possibilities. So it's very exciting. So when you talk about the substrate, is it a canvas? Is it a board? Or can it really be anything? It can be anything with limitations. Uh, you have to learn what proportions of the encaustic medium actually work with different surfaces. So for instance, I generally recommend that my students just paint on wood panel because a more rigid substrate will just be safer in terms of the wax not cracking or popping off. But the longer that you work with the medium, the more you learn different techniques to just basically tweak it so that you can get it to work on canvas or you can get it to work on paper. Um, basically, you want to make the medium be less brittle. And so that involves less of the Damar resin, which is one of the components of the medium. I know I'm getting technical here. <laughs> That's okay. I'm guessing that all waxes are not created equally. So right. is there one specific wax that you use or are there there are multiple waxes that you can use to get different effects? Yeah, I haven't explored all the different waxes because I just, I love beeswax. And I think that's what most encaustic artists use. But there are different waxes out there that have different inherent qualities and different hardnesses um, and surface qualities. So I make my own medium, which is basically seven parts beeswax. I get a granulated beeswax. I melt it down in a big crock pot. And then I add one part of Damar resin, which is almost like a sap, you know, from a tree. And that was the medium to be harder 
if you just use pure beeswax, it always has kind of a tacky, soft surface, which you don't really want. So this kind of cures it, allows it to cure. And you can also get that high gloss surface, if you would like, by buffing it at the end of the process with a cloth or even like a an automobile buffer. So paint a picture for us of like, what what does an artist's workstation look like? Obviously, if you think of an oil painter, they've got a palette. What is an encaustic painter's workstation? How, how do you mix everything? And you've got all these pigments, right, that are oil-based pigments. They're not really oil-based. I actually don't create my own pigments. I buy the wax that's mm. pigmented because of uh, safety precautions. I don't like to work with dry pigments because I don't really have the um, the equipment to keep it a safe process. But generally, an artist will have some kind of a hot plate. And depending on how much money they want to spend, you know, you can, you can buy really high-end encaustic hot plates, or you can be like me and just buy pancake <laughs> griddles. And those work great. And so that's usually what I encourage my students to do. Um, keep it as financially viable as possible, right? And one of the great things that I love about it is you don't have to clean your brushes because the brushes just stay in the, the little pots of color. And when you unplug your hot plate, they're just, you know, it just gets hard in there. And then when you want to start painting again, you just plug in your hot plate, everything melts back down again. So you're really going shopping at the kitchen store rather than at the art store. Really, it's it's very much like cooking. It's like printmaking. It's like sculpture. It's it's very process oriented. So the show that you have coming up has 15 artists in it, including you. What was your criteria for curating the show? Uh, a lot of it for me was just related to the teaching process and yeah, it was difficult because I have a lot of students. I've, I've had a lot of students. Um, the curation was basically based on how the students performed in class and or how dedicated and committed they were to it beyond the class. Now, some people do it all the time now, and it's become their main medium of choice. Some people haven't because they just haven't been able to get the whole studio setup made, which requires some legwork, right? Mm -hmm. um, but some of those students did amazing work in class or just had such an energetic, positive attitude in class. But of course, the quality of work was important. I teach all levels. So there's going to be some artists in there who are full-time professionals, and then there's some people that are just starting out. But I think what's amazing about this show is that if you go in there and just walk around and look, it would be hard to figure out who those artists are, like to pinpoint who has more experience than others. Tell us a little bit about the work that is in the show. Is there an overarching theme or were the students free to come up with anything? They are basically free to come up with anything. And in my organization of the show, I kind of broke it into, uh, let's see, probably about four different categories. I have one wall that's landscape, sort of waterscape, natural world theme. Um, I have another space that's more about mixed media 
And then I have one part that's more about abstraction. And my work is basically abstract. I have 30 pieces of my own. And then there's about 45 others. We also have two amazing installations, one by Leandra Spangler and the other by Stacy Pottinger. And Leandra's takes up a whole wall. And it's just incredible. I'm so excited for everyone to see that. And Stacy's is very impressive, too. And it deals with the pandemic, um, because I basically forced her to make this piece <laughs> for the show. Uh, and it's called Shelter in Place. And it's very, uh, it's very moving. And the, the installations um, have small, smaller pieces. So for instance, uh, Leandra's has 99 smaller components. Uh, that is just, she's a hard working woman. <laughs> And is the show also available to view online? Not yet, but that is a work in progress and I'm hoping it will be soon. So I'm going to be going over there later today and taking photos. I have a lot of photos already, but I want to get some installation photos and then some more close-ups and detail shots. So the show is now open. People can come down and see it. It's on this Friday and uh, today and tomorrow from 12 till 1 for patrons over the age of 60 and high-risk individuals only. And then from 1 till 4 for all patrons. Masks are required and people are asked to maintain social distancing. But that is one way to see a brand new show of encaustic work by Elise Rugolo and her 15 students. Elise, thank you so much for coming on the show to chat. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. And from the Boone History and Culture Centre on the edge of Nifong Park, we are perfectly situated to drop in at Maplewood Barn, where a new production of Shakespeare's Love's Labour's Lost opened last night. And here to tell us more about the show is Maplewood Barn's president, Morgan Dennehy, and the show's director, Christopher Gould. Good morning, Christopher, and hello, Morgan. Hello. Hello, Diana. So this week you open the first, and I hesitate to say post-pandemic, but post insofar as since the pandemic's outset, but most certainly the first play in Columbia for several months. And you have a dramatic reading production of Shakespeare's Love's Labour's Lost at Maplewood Barn. Morgan, I am presuming that it was initially to have been a fully staged play, but the pandemic changed your plans. That is correct. Um, When we... And Christopher and I sat down and talked about our timing issue because we only had so many weeks as opposed to a longer rehearsal period. We decided that it might be easier for the cast to read their scripts rather than try and learn Shakespeare in a short amount of time. But then also, I mean, when you are performing a play, people are moving, they're close together. And in this way, they can maintain their distance. Is that also part of the thought process? Exactly. Well, what we've got is uh, on the stage, we've got 10 stools that are set six feet apart from each other. Those stools don't all get used. This is not like a traditional stage reading where you've got the whole cast sitting on the stage and they basically don't move from their spot. We have created sort of a hybrid production where they are sitting and reading part of the time and in other times they are up and moving around, never getting terribly close to each other. I mean, we've tried to maintain the six feet distance as best as we can, but it's much more interesting for an audience to see people up and moving around than to just see them sitting in one place. 
For sure. This play, Love's Labour's Lost, Christopher, is not one of the more frequently performed of Shakespeare's plays. Can you give us a precy on the story and why you wanted to do this play? Sure thing. Okay, so Love's Labour's Lost is about the King of Navarre, which is a region somewhere in the area of France and Spain, who has decided to make his court, as he puts it, a little academe. He and his three best friends have made a vow that they are going to study and do very little else for three years. They've all signed a piece of paper that says that they will swear to, among other things, see no woman, talk to no woman. He's not allowing any women into his court, etc., etc. Almost immediately that gets broken because the... uh, The princess of France has come to negotiate some business regarding some territory, and he is forced to actually speak to her. She has brought her three ladies-in-waiting. The four men immediately fall in love, and then they have to figure out how to get around these oaths that they've taken not to see or speak to a woman. And then hilarity ensues. It was certainly one of Shakespeare's earlier plays. I think it's dated around the mid-1590s, about the same time as Romeo and Juliet and Midsummer Night's Dream. It hasn't always had the best reviews. A writer in 1710 said of it, since it is one of the worst of Shakespeare's plays, nay, I think I may say the very worst. In 1839, the Times of London said, the play moved very heavily. The whole dialogue is but a string of brilliant conceits, which, if not delivered well, are tedious and unintelligible. And more latterly, the New York Times reviewer, said it may well be the first and best example of a genre that would flourish in less sophisticated forms five centuries later, the college comedy. So, Christopher, what do you love about this play? Well, I, I, first I want to try to address some of that criticism. I don't know that I can uh, address necessarily the criticism that's been left to us for posterity. <laughs> the play... The play definitely has its challenges. It's very much a play about language and words. And there are, the play as fully written contains two characters that speak largely in language that was anachronistic, even in Shakespeare's time. Lots of Latin and some Greek and using very um, arcane words and all the rest. For a modern audience, um, I think a modern audience would just be at an absolute loss for these two characters. So since I have the artistic license and since Shakespeare is in the public domain, I completely cut them out of the play entirely. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) The play as written is three hours long and I have cut it down to about an hour and 45 minutes. I have tried to stick to the main story as I see it, which is this romance or this, uh, maybe badly done romance between the men of the court of Navarre and the women of the princes of France. And in so doing, there are um, characters that are more major in the play as written that are now minor characters. As I say, there's a couple of folks who are cut out entirely. And I have tried to really focus on making sure that the actors who are left know what it is that they're saying so that the audience, even if they don't entirely get the words, can get the gist and the feeling just by dint of the actors knowing what they're saying to themselves, knowing what they're saying to each other, and being able to convey that through their performances. But what do you love about it? What made you want to do this one over other Shakespeare plays? 
Well, you know, that's a funny story too. And I'm, I'm keeping an eye on the time. So I'll try to keep this fairly short because that's a challenge for me, as we all know. <laughs> I traditionally have not loved Shakespeare. I was an English major. I studied a lot of Shakespeare in college and I got kind of burned out on Shakespeare. And, and the plays have never really resounded with me terribly much. But I have some people in my life who absolutely love and adore Shakespeare and saw that this was coming up and begged me to read it. And so I did. And I really kind of fell in love with what I see, again, as the main story. It's, it's the this love story between the men and the women and the way it works out, or, you know, spoiler, the way it doesn't work out in the traditional sense. And I'm very interested in the language. I'm very interested in the love story. It really just, for some reason, it spoke to me. And so I, through the course of this production, I have really come to appreciate the way that Shakespeare uses language to the point where you might see me throwing my hat in the ring for a future Shakespearean play. And, and Morgan, what about you? What, what do you love about it? Well, I like the comedy. And like Christopher said, the language, I too was a, an English major and I've tried to be involved in almost every Shakespeare play at the barn since I started with the barn back in 2014. And some of the witticisms and the byplay between the men and the women. I also love plays that have strong female characters. And this isn't like Much Ado About Nothing. This is another one of those plays that has some very strong female characters. And they hold their own with the men and tend to even one up them, which I enjoy greatly. <laughs> I have to confess that I am incredibly picky about attending a Shakespeare play because I think that even in the professional realm, it is so hard to deliver it in ways that are comprehensible to a modern audience and that you can't just act the lines. You have to be able to translate the intent of the lines kind of very physically and very emotionally. And that is really a tough ask of any actor. What makes Maplewood Barn or community theatre want to do a Shakespeare play when it's so tough, Christopher? Well, you know, unfortunately, that's really more of a Morgan question, but I will answer as best as I can. <laughs> Shakespeare is considered by many, if not most, to be the ultimate playwright. His work is studied in school. We're all forced to read Romeo and Juliet when we're in junior high. Even if we're the right age for the characters, we are in no way really, really ready to deal with the things that go on in that play. And because he's considered to be sort of the ultimate in playwright, people want to see his work performed, even if they don't have a clear understanding of it. The beauty of Shakespeare, as I have found, is that he tells stories that relate to all of us, even here in the modern world. If the language is somewhat anachronistic or archaic to us, the stories themselves are real stories. They're stories of conflict between men and women in love, between men and women in politics, people trying to achieve and maintain power people falling in love and dealing with obstacles between themselves and that love. Hopefully our modern love affairs don't end quite as badly as, as does for Romeo and Juliet quite, quite as much, but it's a thing that we really want to see and see 
done well. And so I think a lot of theaters feel the need to tackle Shakespeare to see what they can do with the productions. And as a result of trying to translate it into the modern audience, you get a lot of adaptations. You know, Shakespeare in the 1940s, Shakespeare in the 1920s, Shakespeare in space. I'm not a huge fan of the Shakespearean (laughs) adaptations. I have yet to see, you know, Romeo and Juliet in space. What I've tried to do with this production is, and it helps because it's a stage reading, it's set at no particular time. It's not modern necessarily, but it's also not Elizabethan. It's just kind of a story in, I hesitate to say in space, but it's a story in a a space where people can hear and relate to the story. It's not set in a time. We're not dealing with a period. It's nothing like that. As far as making it approachable for the modern audience, I mean, the language is definitely an obstacle, and there's not much getting around that. But I think there's we, – we spent about three weeks going through the script to make sure that the actors actually understood what that they were saying. You know, we went through it all and said, okay, so what do you think you're saying here? Here's what I think you're saying here. And so we came up – we came to a general consensus as to what the actors are actually saying to each other. So, again, even if they're using words that are maybe unfamiliar to the audience – they know what they are saying, and therefore the audience can pick that up. I'm a big believer that the actor knowledge helps to inform the performance and thereby inform the audience. Well, your play opens this weekend. It's on for two weekends. Is that correct? And people can buy tickets online, and that is preferred rather than buying tickets um, when you get there. And there's a, a limited number, is there? That is correct. The current restrictions say gatherings of no more than 50 people. We have about 20 people in the production, and that means that we can have no more than 30 audience members on any one night. In order to facilitate that, we are highly recommending that people go online and buy their tickets in advance. They can do so by going to maplewoodbarn.com, and there is a big blue button there where they can buy their tickets. In addition to the audience cap, we have also socially distanced the audience space. We have squares that are set six feet apart from each other so that you and your friends can all come and sit together, but you're not going to be right next to the next person over in their group. And you have an additional beneficiary to the show too. Tell me about that. Yes, that's correct. This is definitely a not-for-profit show. Once we make back our expenses, all the profit is going to the food bank, as Morgan has called it. It's it's a labor of love from Love's Labor's Lost. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming on to chat about the show and break a leg to all the 20 people in the cast. Thank you so much, Diana. I appreciate you having us on. And once again, that is it for today's show. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more news from the local art scene. And until then, stay arty, Columbia. Columbia.